You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today you're going to walk us through one of the ideas that I think is is really fundamental to, to thinking about machine learning or, or working with statistics or prediction or probability overfitting. It seems so easy to wrap your hands around, but but like also not really help us. Yeah, that's uh, right, Catherine. I thought, um, so I thought Ryan just did an amazing job of, um, on Talking Machines, of taking very complex ideas and, and making them uh, sound uh, very simple and understandable. So what I thought I would try is the reverse. Take something that sounds quite simple and see if we can make it a lot more complicated. So maybe maybe I should start, maybe, Catherine, what, if I say overfitting to you, what do you think of as overfitting? So when I think overfitting, I think that you have, you've got some training data and you've got some, probably some real world data and you've got a model and you're training it on your training data, but you train it too well. So, so to the point that it can really only work on the data that you trained it on. And when you show it other stuff, it's not going to be able to make heads nor tails of it. Yeah. That's what I think when I think of overfitting. I think that's uh, broadly right. And I think that one way people avoid it is by making sure that um, their model is simple enough that it can never overtrain. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have a, you reduce the number of parameters. So you sort of say, so the thing, the, the image I always remember, I was taught about overfitting by Chris Bishop, who's an excellent lecturer. And I think it's in his second book, um, he has it with polynomials. He's none of those people who says things. He says, as he says them, they sound super clear. <laughs> um, so he, and, and it's commonly taught with polynomials. You see lots of lectures like, as I, in, the way I can get to this overfitting thing, in that case, um, I uh, increase the number of basis functions I have in polynomials. Mm. And then eventually um, they start going through. If I have as many, um, uh, when I say basis functions, I mean the degree of the polynomial, then it will go exactly through the data. Mm. And that looks like a good thing on your training error, it goes to zero. But then when you look at your test error, as you say, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now, in neural networks, um, uh, I think it goes back to, uh, I think overfitting is more of a machine learning term. And I think it may relate to what we used to say is overtraining. So in overtraining, mm. you start with your big neural network and then like back in the 1990s and you have your 8088 computer steaming away, 8086, <laughs> sorry, the computer steaming away. And then what you would see is that the um, training error would go down. You'd start with small weights and the training error would uh, reduce. And then the, you, would, you were clever, so you monitored things with the validation set. And that has to be carefully chosen to reflect the task you want to to do mm-hmm. but then you choose a validation set and uh, the eventually what happens with the validation set is the error starts going up again on the other side right and you say ah okay i've overtrained and you go back to the sort of set of weights where the validation error hmm. is smallest so overtraining overfitting and it's the same sort of effect it's just sort of easier to illustrate with polynomials because you can just add hmm. polynomials in i'm not sure anyone in machine learning uses polynomials for anything other than to illustrate over fitting anyway <laughs> that's another point so one sort of argument is oh you've used too many parameters or oh you've used you've trained your parameters too well so let's go with the you've used too many parameters because in the neural network case basically you know you're sort of trying to regularize by not training enough um and that's a little bit hard to formalize although um jennifer chase was was, was getting there last week i mean so last week i talked a bit about overfitting in the context of dropout and jennifer chase mentioned it some of her work uh, using statistical physics to try and understand mm-hmm. overfitting mm-hmm. neural networks, which is an incredibly interesting area and something people also used to do in the 1990s. 
So, um, but let's think of the parameter case. So a typical thing people might say is, as I increase the number of parameters, then I'm going to eventually overfit. Um, but I want to sort of examine that idea a little bit. Mm. So when we're saying that, and in the polynomial case, what's happening is every time we introduce a new uh, polynomial degree, x to the 1, x to the 2, right. it's got a parameter with it. Right. And uh, we get a bit more modeling power or some <laughs> loose thing like that. So that's how you get the overfitting. But what if we were to introduce what we would call a heteroscedastic noise? Mm. Oh, okay, wait. Walk me through it. Heteroscedastic? <laughs> Heteroscedastic. Well, you'll remember your uh, ancient Greek. Oh, yes, very well. Very well mm -hmm. from school, yeah. So mm -hmm. hetero means like different mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to homo, which mm -hmm. means the same. the same. And scedastic, I don't really know what it means, but <laughs> in this case, it means something uh, to do with the, uh, it must either mean the, the scale uh, it could mean the scale or it could mean, I don't think it means the level of stochasticity. I, I assume it means the scale. So different scale. So heteroscedastic. Mm. It's often not that helpful to go back to the Greek. Like if you go back to the Greek for <laughs> astrology, you get study of stars. And if you go to astronomy, you get counting stars. Um, what are we talking now? You see, no, let's just ignore the Greek. Um, <laughs> but what it means in practice is that uh, you allow the noise to vary across the input space. So normally in a regression, we allow the mean of the regression to vary. Now, noise is what we would think of as the irreducible error, mm -hmm. the portion of the error that we can't get rid of because it's coming from uh, sources beyond our control and it's not where the information is. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying in a heteroscedastic case is the noise is varying. Mm -hmm. So one thing you could imagine doing uh, is you could give every data point. So one way you can overfit is you can give every data point its own basis function. Right. But another thing you might do with your noise is give every data point its own noise level. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, I'm going to learn the noise level. You know, that's possible. Mm -hmm. that, like every data point has its own noise level. And you're like, oh, well, this is clearly just like the basis function. You're going to horribly overfit now <laughs> uh, because you've given everyone their own noise. But actually that isn't what happens. If you try and fit that model, you don't, you know, don't do it and then use the result. Do it if you're curious, <laughs> but don't do it and then uh, try and ship the result. That will give a that will that will end badly. This is the hold my beer and watch this of machine learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is machine learning for fun, <laughs> uh, not just for fortune. Um, <laughs> so if you do that, what you'll see is the. The noise level around difficult to fit points. Certainly, if you the way to do this is to sort of start by setting them all to a sort of maybe a small noise level that is uniform, and then watch you visualize the noise evolving over time. Because what you'll see is when the noise level is small, then mm -hmm. and you've got a very flexible. So do it also with a, you know a basis function model or a polynomial curve, and do some stochastic gradient descent or not stochastic. Do batch gradient descent on it. And then what you'll see is that the basis functions will start to move toward try and fit the points better to try and overfit. But simultaneously, at any point where the, the mean function of your regression, the sort of output of your regression, is a long way away from the data, the noise will start to increase. It will try and explain it in two ways. It will try and explain mm. it by moving the mean closer and increase the noise. Mm. I don't actually know what the minimum will look like if you train mm. it all the way, but mm. it will be horrible and, mm. it, and it won't work. And in fact, it will it will not tend to overfit, it will tend to underfit because mm. it will tend to just say, well, I don't have to bother explaining that. Right. Um, I mean, it will end up in somewhere horrible, actually. But, but <laughs> you, 
but it will certainly adding these extra parameters will will cause less tendency to overfit than mm. if you just use all the basis functions mm -hmm. you get an underfit and uh, so that's sort of i think of an important issue about that not all parameters are the same mm. parameters mm. come in different types and mm -hmm. i think sometimes we forget that it's a sort of when people talked about these things initially i think it was obvious to them maybe that different parameters were different but hmm. what's going on here is um that the noise parameters the heteroscedastic noise parameters are of different nature than the basis function parameters hmm. so when you typically ask what assumption you use to fit a, a standard model of this type whether it's regression or classification the typical thing people will say They'll write it down, they don't even think about it. I'm doing IID. Mm. And IID stands for independent and identically distributed. Mm. Now, that sounds a bit weird because if I say all my data points are independent, right? what can I learn about one data point given another? Nothing. They're independent. They're totally independent of each other, They're right? Totally There's no relationship. There's no relationship. All I could learn was if I, uh, I could learn the variance or something like that of, of the system, but I can't learn anything if everything's independent. So they don't right. really mean independent. Mm -hmm. What they mean is, but they don't say it because it's too many words, that they're conditionally independent <laughs> given the parameters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And identically distributed. Uh, mm. The identically distributed bit would be for the heteroscedastic model we described. They're not identically distributed because we've given the noise mm. its own parameter. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's still independent. Um, now, what they mean is when we talk about parameters, very often in this context, more parameters, we're talking about the sort of parameters that give you that conditional independence, not other types of parameters. Hmm. I think it's not confusing if you're just sort of fitting sort of some standard model sets, but there's interesting model sets where um, if you take these lessons and translate them, uh, then they don't work anymore. And some of the things that you normally do and you normally expect don't work anymore. So as you get deeper into machine learning, something that appeared simple perhaps starts to look a little bit more complicated. It becomes much more complex. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that one of the answers is actually to, and I, and I know it's a bit of a pain, but one of the answers is to try and formalize our language a bit more. Yeah. Um, because there are sort of good concepts, and I want to talk about one of them next week, which I think is just a really fundamental concept, that of the bias variance mm. dilemma. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I, I work in this Bayesian area where we don't tend to look at the bias variance dilemma so much, but I just think it's critical. I think if you, know, if you can get students, like when you teach machine learning 101 to your whatever level you're teaching at, at undergrad, you know, a lot of students don't care. I, I know you're surprised. I can see the shock on your face, <laughs> Catherine, but it's true. Totally aghast. There are students that just don't care. And you sort of think, well, and I think actually the, the, a lot of these thoughts come from trying to teach and trying to get things down to a certain level. Mm -hmm. And you sort of think, well, but there's got to be some fundamental things they need to know about machine learning mm -hmm. that they could use in the real world, even if they aren't going to spend their time running TensorFlow or MXNet or whatever else, fitting models for fun, <laughs> testing out their ideas about overfitting in their, in their lunch break. <laughs> Even if they're not going to do that, they're going to have to face data in the real world. Right. Right. Yep. And decision making in the real world. Inescapable. And I think the two things I would like them to understand is model validation in terms of how you test for generalization error, how you test when something's gone wrong. So the sort of like how you choose a validation set, how you 
you mm-hmm. cross validation these things i think they're super critical and anyone can kind of learn that you don't have to know much about the algorithms the ideas are sensible without the algorithms and then maybe the other concept i'd like them to know is the bias variance mm-hmm. dilemma which is uh, we'll talk about that next time I, I know some people can't wait they're just like oh my god faded breath for the next episode <laughs> bias variance that's going to be amazing <laughs> But, uh, you know, I just thought it was it, overfitting is just one of those things. And I think there's many that the, the more time you spend in the field, it's like the curse of expertise. Mm-hmm. Mm, you, you get overthink so far things. in, you can't Overthinking. Oh. I've been overthinking about overfitting. <laughs> and now, now I hope everyone's as confused as I am. You can find more, even more, about overfitting on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our listener question on this episode of Talking Machines is about unbalanced data. And basically, can we discuss how to handle unbalanced data? So, Neil, any suggestions? Oh, unbalanced data. Ah, oh, that's such a... See, some areas are just difficult to study and often need uh, pragmatic solutions. And I'd say that unbalanced data is, is sort of really one of them. Also difficult academically. I mean, so I've moved from academia to industry. And one of the things I love mm-hmm. about it is that these problems that are difficult to write papers about are kind of like all the problems everyone has. Like an unbalanced data is like a massive one. <laughs> now, I don't think I can give an absolute solution because I think it varies uh, and uh, from topic to topic. And, and, and in, in some sense, uh, you know, I'm not as close to working with data sets as I used to be. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so oh, let, let's just formalize the question a little bit. It's not, presumably it's not unbalanced as in unhinged. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, <laughs> Like I mean, hopefully data. not. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's sort of um, balance, unbalanced as in um, typically what we might mean by that. But I want to generalize it a little bit is that we have um, a data set where perhaps the positive class is very small, mm. relative ne- negative class, very common. So mm-hmm. if you take diseases, like if we were interested in skin uh, uh Skin lesions, moles, mm-hmm. trying to see if they're cancerous or not. Well, very fortunately, most moles aren't cancerous. Right. So if you just take a uniform distribution across all moles, you'll get very few cancerous. And mm-hmm. The interesting thing that happens when you try and fit these models, um, and I, I don't really have good formal explanations for it, is that if you have too much... Now, in theory, all the theory tells you, the sort of theory without the practice that, of what happens in infinite data is, oh, well, don't worry if um, your uh, model uh, class is, uh, has got the true data within it, mm-hmm. which it never has, mm. and you have infinite data, mm-hmm. which you which never do. Which you never do. do. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. So, but, but under these theoretical conditions, um, uh, then, then it's fine. You don't do anything. You just throw all the data in, and you wait infinitely long time for your answer. Now, in practice, um, two things go wrong. People rarely give you infinite data, and mm-hmm. people rarely give you um, uh, a model class which um, uh, has is, the well, data. The real in data, it that, yeah, yeah, that has the, that, that, yeah. Your re- your actual model is a simplification. Typically. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know which the stronger effect is when you're doing these data sets, but I, I suspect it's the the initially the sort of low data because something sort of unusual happens with objective functions, something like likelihood, which you can show is unbiased. When mm-hmm. you present it with unbalanced data, it will spend way too much time dealing with the likelihood of the negative class. So mm. if you look at the likelihood as it's a sum, the log likelihood becomes a sum. So we were talking earlier about conditional independence and that's what you get because of conditional independence, you take the log and that gives you a sum over the um, 
different terms, uh, each term dependent on the parameters. But in that sum, let's say 90% of your data is negative and 10% is positive. 90% mm -hmm. of those terms uh, will have negative data in them. And basically, your fit sort of biases more towards the negative data. So it's like, I fit the data, negative data really well. So it spends time sort of making sure it's classified super well negative data. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's good. We've described the problem. Now let's try and describe solutions. So there's some interesting solutions around this. One is just to throw away a load of your negative data. Hmm. So to literally make the weight of the thing that you're seeing more of smaller as compared to your outliers? Yeah, so you, well, as a pro compared, so they're not so much outliers, they're the positive, they, they, well, they are kind of in some sense, they're outliers in the data, but the positive class is few of them. So in that sense, mm. they're outliers. So you said, so, but you, you just try and rematch it to a 50-50 balance or something like mm. that. So you throw away like, uh, so someone gives you 10,000 uh, uh, non-cancerous skin mm -hmm. lesions and 1,000 cancerous and you throw away 9,000 non-cancerous and you could just do that at random and that will actually get you... Uh, typically better results uh, wow. in practice. I know. I know it's that simple. No, it's not that simple. <laughs> I mean, it's not the best thing you can probably do. I mean, because what you're doing is you're also throwing away information. Right. And one thing we sort of know is that the data points you're most interested in are those that are sort of closer to the decision boundary. Mm -hmm. So we know that for a few reasons. There's some active learning things. I mentioned last week, query by committee will show us that. It will grab data points close to the decision boundary, which is great. Um, support vector machines also taught us a lot about that. I mean, basically, the, the, if you've got something that's so far away from the positive class you know, that it's well classified, if you look at the likelihood, it does nothing to the position of the decision boundary. Mm. So just a sort of throw away of 90% is not necessarily the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. Now, there was some work um, by Tommy Yakula and his student where what they were doing in these type of situations in a semi-supervised learning example, actually, this was. So this was a different unbalance. This is where you have a small amount of labeled data and a large amount of unlabeled data. Now, in that case, the same thing happens. This is a challenge of semi... You try and fit a model that uh, is looking at the unlabeled and the labeled data at the same time. Actually, the same thing happens for a similar reason. You get dominated by the unlabeled data and the, the labeled data is just ignored. Hmm. But they had this great idea in that case to sort of weight the likelihood. So group the terms together and reweight hmm. them. So instead of throwing away the data or throwing away some of the unlabeled data, they, would, they were waiting between. Well, I don't think that was necessarily their idea. They, they took that idea and they looked at the entire solution path uh -huh. of as you change that weighting, they looked at all the different models they got. And I think that was more their idea. I think the weighting idea is sort of um, that they had an elegant way of looking at the solution path. Um, now, I'm crediting that to them, but I'm sure lots of people have done this. So, you know, you could imagine sort of reweighting those terms of your likelihood. Mm -hmm. So this feels a bit heuristic, but I think in practice that's going to work. Mm -hmm. Another thing you could f do is also actively try and select your um, negative class. So I did mm -hmm. something once called the IVM, the Informative Vector Machine. It's an amazing paper, and everyone should really be using it. Um, <laughs> don't know why they're not. But anyway, it was an active learning-based idea. And one of the things that would do if the data was unweighted, it was trying to actively select. It was using nice. active learning within a data set. I think this is a fun idea. It was a way of reducing the data set size. Yeah. So you're given a data set which you know the labels of. So normally right. active learning, you bring in data points where you don't know the labels of. But yep. to try and reduce data set size, the idea was to actively select using active learning criteria um, data points that were giving you more information about decision boundary in line with the query by committee paper I mentioned last week mm -hmm. and that method itself would actually select approximately equal positive and negative 
points from the data mm. set because a lot of those negative points weren't giving you the value. So it was sort of it was throwing away that information, but it was throwing it away selectively. Mm -hmm. And I think that throwing away selectively is an interesting thing to do. So really the fundamental approach here is to somehow to making it to making your data set smaller, literally. That's the only sentence I can use to think of to like categorize the problem. You've you've cut to the heart of the matter. The answer to an unbalanced problem is to rebalance it. <laughs> Perfect. We've solved it, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, not necessarily small, mm -hmm. um, but it's one thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. But to rebalance it in some way, and that's often in the likelihood. Mm -hmm. That's often the techniques people use. I think there are probably cleverer things that you could do. Oh, another one I really like from the days of the support vector machine. Back in the day. <laughs> yeah. and, and this wasn't my area. So earlier I had my own plug, but this isn't even my area, but I thought it was cool. <laughs> They, they had asymmetric costs associated with misclassification. Mm. So they would, um, in the support vector machine, they varied the cost penalty. It's, it's equivalent to the weighting mm -hmm. we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, but it just worked out much more elegantly in the maths of the SVM. That's why everyone loved SVMs, because uh, algorithmically they were complex, but the maths was often very beautiful. Mm. And um, they would pay, a, I think you pay a larger penalty for making a mistake on the positive class than the negative ah. class. And, so you would this this tendency for the negative class to dominate the decision boundary was dealt with that way. So again, it's a sort of rebalancing, and and SVMs automatically select a subset of the data, um, but in this case, it would force them to constantly be selecting the positive. Mm. I never tried it in practice, mm. but the the idea was too beautiful. I hope I didn't want to try it in case it didn't work. You know, beautiful ideas they should just exist and work. So, but I think it did work. Take a look, put it on the shelf. Don't use it. Don't want to break it. Yeah, don't touch don't that. Touch it that. Might, not it work. might not work. That would, it, there would be something wrong with the world if it says. I thought that was a lovely idea. I can't remember <laughs> who it was due to, but uh, lovely idea. Yeah. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS or write us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Tom Dietrich. He's a distinguished professor emeritus and director of the Intelligence System School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Oregon State University. And we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? I did my bachelor's degree at Oberlin College, and I was very interested in political science and policy at that time, and I took a course in the philosophy of political science in which the instructor had me read Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolutions, and I got interested in this question of how is it that we learn things in, in the sort of scientific sense mm -hmm. of uh, the philosophy of science. Um, I didn't actually major in, in political science. Uh, I was a math major uh, and with a minor in statistics. And so then I went to uh, the University of Illinois for my uh, master's degree with a guy named Richard Mikalski, who is the person responsible for naming the field of machine learning. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I had no idea what computer science was, <laughs> right, because I had programmed, I'd, I'd been very interested in programming as a child. In fact, I had an uncle who was an MIT PhD who worked for General Electric oh, wow. on the Dartmouth time-sharing system in the ancient days. And so I programmed in basic uh, through a teletype, uh, you know, I don't know when that was, back in the Stone Age sometime. Smoke signals. Yeah, with uh, punch tape. I never did punch cards too much, but um, then I, uh, it turned out that, that Mikowski was interested in uh, what we now call machine learning, and uh, my previous exposure to philosophy of science and 
the machine learning things came together, that was really a coincidence because I took this uh, GRA position with him having no idea what he did. It was just money, right? And, right. and having no idea what computer science was or anything. So um, I did a master's uh, at Illinois uh, working on a card game called Eleusis, which mm. had been published in Martin Gardner's uh, mathematical games column. And it's a game in which one player uh, is, uh, the, is God or an oracle and makes up a rule that's going to describe what we would now call a time series of cards being played along the table. Um, and then the players try to play a card that will successfully continue the sequence. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you might have a rule like you have to alternate red and black cards or uh, you know, no two cards of different sexes can touch, or various things like mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. You get bandit feedback, and we would say nowadays. Of course, it's actually in the two output case, uh, the same as supervised feedback from the oracle. Um, and uh, and uh, you get points for correct uh, prediction. And then a player can also declare themselves to be a prophet mm. when they think they know what the rule is. And so then when someone else makes a guess, they, they make their prediction. And then they can, of course, be declared a false prophet <laughs> if they're wrong. Um, and so uh, the, there's an interesting um, you know, dynamic that the god likes to come up with rules that have exceptions to, to uh, yeah, make, make it tricky. Um, so uh, then, then for my PhD, I moved to Stanford uh, and joined the Heuristic Programming Project, which was Ed Feigenbaum's group that at the time uh, had just been developing expert system technology. And uh, I inherited uh, a software system that Tom Mitchell had built when he was uh, a PhD student. And I sort of replaced him uh, <laughs> working for Bruce Buchanan, who was mm. my PhD advisor. One year into my Stanford degree, we had the first workshop in machine learning at Carnegie Mellon. It was organized by Tom Mitchell, Richard Michalski, and Jaime Carbonell. There were about 30 people in the room. So we've gone by a factor of 100 <laughs> to, to get yeah. to where we are today. Wow, that's crazy. And you're doing a lot of work now uh, on um, applying to a pretty, what seems to be a pretty unusual area, ecological questions. So it turns out that uh, two things came together again. So, so one is that, uh, you know, I'm at Oregon State University, which turns out to be one, a real powerhouse in ecology. According to the National Science Foundation, Oregon State submits, I'm not saying they're awarded, but they submit <laughs> twice as many proposals in ecology as any other institution in the U.S. Wow. So we have a very big uh, uh, research community there. And one of the pieces of advice I'd been given by Ed Feigenbaum, actually, was uh, collaborate with the smartest people you can find. And, uh, and then a third thing was that uh, sort of midway through my career, so in the mid-'90s, um, I realized that I had figured out how to publish technical papers in machine learning, but I wasn't sure I was really having an impact. Hmm. Uh, you have to take yourself back to a time when no companies were using machine learning, no one was using it. It was sort of like a little toy off on the side. And, uh, and so in the search for to have some impact, I wanted to move into things that had some bearing on policy and management. And, uh, and so, again, echoes from my past mm -hmm. uh, resurfacing. So tell me about some of the projects that you're working on. There's, there's a huge range, everything from migratory bird patterns to, um, uh, I think it's uh, surveying um, anthropod populations, is that right? Right. So, um, yeah, so I've done a number of things, uh, or tried a number of things in the, in the space, both in ecological science and also in, uh, uh, say, ecosystem management mm -hmm. or policy making. Mm -hmm. So on the science side, uh, 
I guess the, the, the uh, biggest project has been this project on bird migration, which really came out of uh, this collaboration with Carla Gomes at uh, Cornell. So uh, Carla has been the, the moving force behind uh, trying to create a new field called computational sustainability, mm. uh, which is the application of, of computer science ideas, particularly algorithms, to problems in sustainability. Uh, which would encompass not only ecosystem type sustainability, but you know, alternative energy, smart cities, uh, various things like that, uh, sustainable development. But Cornell also is the place where ornithology was invented, right? And the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has this amazing citizen science project called Project eBird. It, it plays two roles. One is it, uh, it helps bird watchers maintain a list of all the birds they've ever seen mm -hmm. and keep track of all their records. But also uh, bird watchers go out, say, uh, on a Saturday morning to Central Park, and they they collect a checklist of of the number of birds they've seen of each species, where they were, how long they were there, and now with the smartphone you upload it uh, or collect it as you go. Wow. Of course, this is uh, so so they were collecting this data, and you know in some sense this was part of the small group of projects that created citizen science. But uh, they were collecting a lot of data without doing any science right, with it. Uh, right. Because, as we all know, it's really tough to do science with citizen science data. <laughs> um, maybe harder in this case because, say, if we think about something like Galaxy Zoo, where people are labeling images, mm -hmm. those images were collected by scientists with a, under some sampling plan that was understood. Right. But bird watchers go where they go when they want to go. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so if you plot a map of our bird watcher sightings, it's a very good map of human population density, right. not necessarily uh, about bird density. Maybe so, also brunch spots. Right, and B&Bs and things. Right. You end up with, uh, yeah, if you naively fit the data, you decide that, well, endangered species really like highways. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was a sort of a rude awakening or, or, mm. you know, to, to mm -hmm. the problem of sample selection bias and, uh, and needing to, to uh, model the measurement process. So that project first was modeling just the spatial distribution of birds. And then Dan Sheldon, who had done his PhD at Cornell, came to work with me as a postdoc. And we, uh, uh, collaborating with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, uh, hatched this goal of creating birdcasts, which would be a continent-scale bird migration model. So we're trying to fit a hidden Markov model of bird behavior. So imagine putting a grid over the US of fairly large cells, uh, so that we have maybe a, t a thousand total cells. Mm -hmm. And, and we can think every, every day, or actually every night, birds uh, uh, migrate primarily at night. And so we can imagine that on the morning of a day, they are in one of those cells. Mm -hmm. If we think about just one bird for a moment, its current state will be the cell that it's in. And that night, it may decide to stay in that cell or switch to some other cell. Mm -hmm. And what we're interested in is uh, having an a explanatory model that says, what are the features uh, that the bird is is paying attention to to make that decision is it uh, that bird is on a schedule and wants to be in Ithaca by uh, <laughs> May 17th mm -hmm. or is it that the bird is waiting for favorable wind maybe has certain ideal temperatures or maybe it's a combination of those where early on it can afford to to wait for favorable things but as it's getting closer to May 17th it says right. I just got to go right. because I'm going to not get there in time to get a good uh, nesting site. So we're trying to fit that model. The, and if we, if we had only one bird and we could observe it every day, right. then we would have perfectly supervised data. Um, but we have billions of birds and we observe them with very low probability. And we don't have 
unique identifiers. Mm -hmm. So we're getting aggregated counts, mm -hmm. anonymous counts. Um, so it's a bit like also the kind of traffic data that coils in the highways collect. You just know how many vehicles went by a point, and you have to try to guess, well, what are the flows? How can you reconstruct the flows? Right. So Dan developed a model called the collective graphical model, which is a way of uh, addressing this. That's fantastic. Excellent. So what are the other projects that you're working on? Well, maybe I shouldn't take quite so much time to describe each one. But, um, <laughs> so switching over to the problem of ecosystem management, um, I've got two projects that involve the spatial spreading processes. So one of those is the spread of invasive species, in this case, the tamarisk in a river network. So tamarisk is a species that, that's native to the Middle East, mentioned many times in the Bible, favorably. Uh, but in the uh, Western U.S., it's become a competitor for water mm. with native species and a competitor with people for water, particularly mm. in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, like many invasive species, it's a very successful organism. It makes lots of seeds, uh, and it's, uh, it outcompetes others. And, and so it's just a great organism, <laughs> and, uh, but we would like to slow it down mm -hmm. uh, or even stop it. So... Um, we can uh, think of the problem of spatial spread as a Markov decision process. Um, so we, um, we think of a river as being a binary tree uh, where uh, branches, it, the water is flowing from the leaves to the root. Um, and, uh, and so there are seeds that travel downstream in the river. They land on the riverbank. They, they uh, compete to get established. Mm -hmm. They grow. They make trees. Those trees make seeds and so on. And so there are various actions that you could take could go and try to kill the trees. You mm -hmm. could plant native trees to compete with them. Mm -hmm. um, you could try to do both of those things. Usually, you're pretty severely budget constrained, and so that's part of the interesting thing. And so, um, this is a good example of a bioeconomic model because they have both a biological process, which is the you know uh, reproduction, spread, and mortality of this species or multiple species in this case, and we have the economic model, the cost of intervention, um, the success probabilities of the intervention. And, uh, and we might also have a risk-sensitive objective. That is, we might really not want the native species to go extinct. So even if it doesn't go extinct in expectation, we'd really like to know, well, what fraction of the time is it going to go extinct under our policy? And maybe we'd like that fraction to be uh, low, mm -hmm. like 1% or right. something. Yeah, right. So we're studying algorithms for trying to uh, solve these MDPs. And um, the other problem that I work on is uh, wildfire spread. And the question we're looking at there is uh, uh, when lightning ignites a fire, should we let that fire burn or should we uh, try to suppress it? Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. policy since the 19-teens has pretty much been to suppress all fires. Mm -hmm. But it turns out you can only postpone forest fires. You can't really prevent them. Mm -hmm. Again, we can think of this as a Markov decision process where nature makes uh, her move, in this case, lightning, uh, lights a fire, and then we have to decide how to respond, mm -hmm. and we take turns. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so in both of these problems, we do not have a closed-form probability transition matrix, so they're really a kind of reinforcement learning problems in the sense that um, uh, we can draw samples from a simulation. Um, and in both cases, the simulation simulators had already been developed by the economists mm. uh, or the firefighters in the case of the wildfire. Uh, and so we're just trying to repurpose those for long-range planning purposes. And so the computational challenge there is uh, how can we uh, minimize the number of samples, Monte Carlo samples, we need to take from these simulators? How can we be smart about where to sample? And so that connects us back to problems in uh, multi-armed bandits and, and intelligent exploration 
Um, but uh, maybe again with a risk sensitive uh, objective rather than just an expected utility objective. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I can think of nothing more uh, hotly debated and contested than ecological policy for much of the United States, and especially when it comes to fire, um, fire prevention or, or conservation. Um, how, how has it been for you as a uh, person who's working with um, data in this area to uh, advise on policy or... or do you advise on policy, or do you well, simply produce your I models? Would and so far, we have not made actual contact with policymakers. So, so there's still a risk that we are just uh, playing games in the computer science uh, space. But I have uh, collaborators, uh, particularly in the firefighting setting, and uh, our goal is really to try to create a new set of tools that. Um, Policymakers and stakeholders can use to 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 think about these long-term planning problems. So the main reason policy and analysis systems like this fail is we had the wrong objective function. Right. And so I think the the um, there is no consensus on what the right objective function is. But so it's really our role to try to create a um, interactive tool where people could. Uh, add objectives, reweight objectives, mm. ask questions like um, how much would it cost to control Tamarisk within 10 years or if I have this fixed budget, how many years will it take to control Tamarisk? Can it be controlled at all? Um, you know, so there's a whole raft of questions that you'd like to ask and some of them are very challenging computationally. Um, it's also very challenging to try to create something that might be operating at interactive speeds, mm -hmm. which means we need to have, for instance, a series of, of uh, more and more crude but faster and faster models that we can get a really quick uh, idea of what the policy, how the policy might change mm -hmm. if you change the relative costs of things or something, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, give them an immediate answer and then say, well, if you want a real answer, you, we need 24 hours <laughs> right. and a large machine to, to, to get it. So this is also an area um, applying these uh, applying machine learning to ecological questions and conservation questions that I feel like has grown a lot recently. How have you seen the field change over the course of your career? We were having a discussion on the uh, IMLS board about trying to get all of the proceedings of all of the ICMLs um, uh, online, and uh, and I have a complete collection of them back to the to the workshop in in 1980. Um, I th if you look at the papers in 1980, you would not recognize it as being machine learning. Mm. And I'm sure the people uh, looking now also maybe have that same <laughs> sense of being slightly disoriented. Um, there was a lot more contact with cognitive psychology, mm. um, right? So, um, uh, and, and this, of course, makes sense it, since it kind of came out of CMU. And Herbert Simon was our, our keynote speaker at the very first meeting. Uh, and early on, there was, uh, it was, a, in some sense, a much broader set of questions were being explored. Mm. There was one talk that was really weird at that meeting. It was by a guy named Ross Quinlan, who had these things called decision trees. Um, and we thought that they were really uh, strange because he wasn't using any kind of logical representations. Because everyone was interested in relational representations and very complex kind of knowledge representation ideas. Mm -hmm. But his system actually worked. Um, <laughs> he wasn't trying to do generalization, though. He was doing compression. So right, he was looking at uh, these um, end game tables in chess that have been constructed by reverse enumeration mm. from, from all winning positions. You play backwards and try to find all positions that, from which you could win in K moves. It's a problem that actually comes up in, in our uh, 
in our uh, Tamarisk thing as well is, uh, um, so there you have a tabular expression of what the optimal policy is, right. but you can't make any sense of it. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly hard to memorize it if you were trying to use it to play chess. Mm -hmm. I mean, computer doesn't have any problem, but, right. but uh, and so what Ross was doing was essentially fitting decision trees to exactly fit that data. Mm. So there was no question of overfitting. <laughs> it was to just compress, losslessly compress, mm -hmm. this big you know, table of hundreds of thousands of, of board positions into a maybe decision tree that was only 10, 12 nodes or something. So, right. So anyway, that was uh, people were kind of surprised and didn't know what to make of Ross Quinlan's <laughs> ID3 system, and yet ultimately that was the one paper, the first workshop that had the biggest impact. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yeah. so Professor Dietrich, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been fantastic. Well, you're very welcome. It's fun to talk about these things. Tom Dietrich, formerly of Oregon State, now Professor Emeritus. Um, it's really fantastic to have conversations with him and to hear about the, the evolution of his work and what he's done over the course of his career. Amazing. Tom is one of those people who, I mean, he's seen everything and, and done everything, massively respected. I remember we had a very small workshop at NIPS one year and, uh, it, you know, you, sometimes you worry about your small workshop and, and Tom was there. You just feel so proud to have people like Tom in your audience. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so much experience and, and so much knowledge. Great, great to hear from you. Definitely. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.